Jesus, I thank you that you hear these prayers, that we can ask these things with confidence and hope, knowing that it is your desire to bless your body. I thank you, God, that you have brought us into your body as many members of, of, uh, of one church. Uh, I thank you that even now, by your Spirit, you are building us up together as living stones. And the result there, Lord, is not that we are a pretty piece of architecture, but that we would be a holy dwelling place for God in the Spirit. So I, I, I pray that through the preaching of your word and in our prayers and in our fellowship, uh, that you would be pleased to dwell with your people, to dwell among your people, that your body would grow up into the fullness of the stature of Christ, that, that even this morning as your word is preached and as we uh, look at issues of, of division and unity, that you would be giving us uh, our full share of the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We desire for you to be blessed by our gathering, uh, and we know we, we can't do anything without your blessing on our gathering, so bless us now. Bless each individual here by not blessing them individually, but blessing us collectively as your body, as one church. We look to you, Jesus, as the fulfillment of all our hopes, of all our desires. We want to give glory only to you, and we pray that your word would be our guide today to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, welcome to church, guys. Let's see if I remember how to do this. You know, you miss one week, and it just all goes, I don't, I don't remember. Is this where I stand? Is this good? Is this? All right. Um, go ahead and turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're, we're going to be starting in verse 10 and going through verse 17. Um, we're beginning to tackle this, this topic that Paul introduces, this problem that the Church of Corinth had, which is this problem of division, of a lack of unity. And of course, none of this is theoretical or hypothetical. It's not just that we like history lessons and that there was once upon a time a church that wasn't as good as ours, right? Like, you know, division in the church is a real threat for every church in every age with all people. Um, and this, this isn't addressed so much in this passage, but knowing that we are a church that is prone to every sin, we can say there, but for the grace of God go I about just about anything. Uh, and knowing that we are prone to division, um, also knowing that tonight we have prayer here at 630, uh, I'm going to put a plug in there and say uh, one way to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace is to pray with each other. Um, so tonight, Brian and Madison are going to lead us in a time of prayer starting at 630. Uh, I'd invite all of you to come to that. And uh, if you miss this one, well, don't come tonight at 630. But it's every other week. Prayer is every other week here at the church at 630. Um, so starting in verse 10, I'm going to read you this passage from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Chapter 1, verse 10. Paul says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now, I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. 
Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be of no effect. Now, right there in verse 10, at the beginning, we see some real practical leadership skills from the Apostle Paul. Now, later on in this book, Paul is going to claim rank. He's going to defend his uh, apostolic credentials and remind them that he does indeed have authority to come to their church and remove people. He asks them in chapter 4, Shall I come to you with a rod? But that's not how he starts the letter. It's very clear that Paul has started this letter in a spirit of gentleness, more gentleness than I think any of us would be able to muster up under the same circumstances. He's thanking God for the Corinthians, and he loves the Corinthians dearly, and he wants to bring the eyes of the Corinthians onto Jesus Christ. But now he's getting into the problems that he needs to address. There was a reason he had to write this letter, and it wasn't because it was someone's birthday. This is a letter that was written to fix problems. It's a letter that's there to put out fires. So two weeks ago, uh, we read that Paul thanked God that the church was rich in spiritual gifts. And there's a bit of humor there. And I suggested that Paul addresses this in a way that most of us wouldn't. If we saw the Corinthians doing what they were doing with the gifts of the Holy Spirit, we would say, make it stop. Whatever you do, just make it stop. Shut it down. Well, similarly, Paul is going to address the division in the church, perhaps in ways that you and I wouldn't. Paul is an apostle, and more importantly, Paul is the spiritual father to this church. He planted the church. Many who were there were led to the Lord by Paul himself, discipled afterwards by Paul himself. And as we've been saying every week in our study in Corinthians so far, the problems in Corinth were serious, very serious. So how would you address this if you were Paul? If you knew that no one's getting along with each other, there's divisions, there's factions, there's schism, you'd say, stop it. Just knock it off. I'm in charge here. The grown-up is speaking now. Stop being so stupid. That's Paul. That's the Apostle Paul that we would, you know, relate to. Or in, in this case, where there were apparently two sides, at least, to the argument, Paul, you know, you might imagine him setting himself up as judge and jury and saying, okay, I heard... I heard this side, I heard this side, she's right, you're wrong, I have spoken, it is done, moving on. It just save time, right? But this kind of top-down ruling is not what we see from the Apostle Paul. What Paul does in verse 10 is he says, I plead with you, brethren. This is much more gentleness than many of us would think necessary in the situation. He is coming to his family, he calls them brethren, here, equals, he calls them children later on, but they're family. And he says, please, I'm pleading with you. I'm begging with you. I am appealing to you, please, for the sake of Christ and his body. Do try to get along. Now let's look at what Paul is actually asking of these people. The first thing he asks is that they all speak the same thing. Uh, what does that even mean? Okay, in Corinthians, Paul will encourage the Corinthians to find unity in doctrinal essentials. And in non-essentials. We'll get to the second one in a second. But first, to speak the same thing 
what this what this means is to have the same confession of faith, um, the same creed, the same liturgy. Now, what this does not mean, it does not mean that we speak the same thing about all the same things. Christians are allowed to have different opinions on things just like anyone else. And anyone reading this would know that Paul is not talking about matters of personal taste or opinion. He's talking first and foremost about the truths of the gospel. Knowing that Paul is talking about matters of doctrine, then this exhortation to speak the same thing essentially means that Paul is telling the church to agree on what was seen as the essentials of Christian doctrine. The church, historically, has gathered around creeds in order to have everyone attending speak the same things. And in some churches, they literally speak the same thing at the same time. They recite the creed. Examples of this in in Scripture, speaking the same thing, Paul writing to the Galatians. uh, In Galatians 1a, he says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. This would be an example of people not speaking the same thing. There's the Apostles' Gospel, and there's this other new gospel that's real shiny and catches your eye. Paul says, no, if someone speaks a different thing, let them be accursed. There's being a gospel contrary to the one preached by the apostles. Uh, An example of an early creed that was probably recited or sung in the churches. You can see that in uh, 1 Timothy 3.16. This is Paul writing again. He says, and without controversy, there's that unity, that total Christian unity. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed in the world, received up in glory. You can hear the cadence, right? You know that's not just freehand Paul writing. That's, that's an example of an early creed. Uh, later, the Apostles' Creed, and then even later, the Nicene Creed, among others, are still standards held up by all Christians in every denomination as representative of biblical Christianity, and they are still rejected pretty much only by the cults. So I believe the first thing that Paul is encouraging the church to do is agree on the doctrinal essentials, to speak the same thing. However, we know that there's more to it than that. There's more to church unity than reciting the same thing from your bulletin, right? You and the person next to you can agree on all of the statements of faith of of your church and all the historical Christian creeds and still scream at each other on the way to church. Okay, that's a far cry from church unity. There are non-essentials, things that aren't of a doctrinal nature, that Paul is going to address in this letter to the Corinthians. There's the issue of food sacrifice to idols that we'll get into. There's the issue of head coverings in the church and how long your hair should be. Okay, these aren't gospel issues, are they? But they're, they're addressed, and they become a gospel issue if they're causing a division in the actual body of Christ. That's a problem. Paul makes it clear that there are some things that are going, uh, that are going to be thought about one way by some people and others who will see it through a completely different lens. And Paul's word to them is the same in both cases, whether it's doctrinal or not, whether it's essential or not, he says, strive for unity. Try to get along. To borrow a phrase from Philippians, he says, consider others as better than yourself. Now, both of these types of unity, the unity in doctrinal essentials, the absolute closed-handed issues, and unity in spite of non-essential differences, are each going to be tackled by Paul in different parts of the book. But what happens when the church divides, for whatever reason, whether the church is dividing for a good reason or a less than good reason, 
If the church is dividing, then that is a gruesome, violent rending and tearing of the body of Christ. When Paul says, let there be no division, still in verse 10, the word for division is schismata, and it means to tear, to rip apart. Uh, when he says that they should be perfectly joined together, the word for joined together is a medical term that refers to bones healing after being broken. So the word schism, uh, that's come to mean something very specific. Um, a schism generally means a rift in the church on a, on a theological topic. It's when you have one group of people saying, we can't worship together. We cannot worship with you. We are of a different spirit. And, and you say, like, there's got to be times for that. I mean, there, there has to be a, a definition. We believe Jesus is God. If you don't believe Jesus is God, you're not worshiping Jesus. We're not worshiping the same God. We're, we're of a different spirit. Okay, so that, that we know there's got to be those lines. But then if, there's, if people are dividing for a lesser reason, it's still a separation, still important. If someone divides the body of Christ over false doctrine, that's a terrible crime against the Lord, of course. If someone divides the body of Christ because they're too proud to apologize to someone else, it's still just as bad. Uh, if, if the body of Christ is divided because someone gets annoyed over the mannerisms of another Christian and they can't put up with another Christian's view on any given topic, that's still the same crime. The crime is division of the body of Christ. It's the same body that is being attacked, divided. So Paul is pleading with the church, be agreed. When he says speak the same thing, he's talking about be agreed on the doctrinal essentials. And then he says, let there be no division among you. That opens things up to kind of the junk drawer of, of divisions, okay? Why? There's, there's an infinite number of reasons why you might divide the body of Christ. Try not to do that. Paul is pleading with the church that they be agreed. And now again, he isn't wanting lockstep uniformity. He's wanting health and wholeness. He's wanting humility and unity. He wanted the Christians in Corinth who weren't getting along to know that they were all on the same team and it's about time they started acting like it. Now remember, none of this is theoretical. None of this was written simply because Paul felt like doing a Bible study on unity and that sounded fun. He's having to write this letter to people he knows and loves who are doing damage to the church because of their selfishness and pride. Look at verse 11. It says, For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Chloe's people tattled on the Corinthians. Okay, so Paul, Paul is writing this letter from uh, Ephesus, probably. Um, there were people who, who traveled, who were somehow connected to this lady, Chloe, relatives maybe, or just people that met at her home group in her house. And they traveled well where Paul is, and they say, listen, there's content. People are fighting back in Corinth in Chloe's house. We don't know anything about Chloe, uh, but apparently everyone reading Paul's letter would have known who she was. Uh, it's possible that she was a deaconess in the church. There's many churches that met in the homes of rich women. This happened in Philippi and in Rome. Uh, so Chloe may be the hostess for one of the home groups in Corinth, one of the church congregations. Uh, but the report that comes from her house is that people are fighting there, that there's factions. And the nature of these contentions is given in verse 12. Verse 12 and 13 says, Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? 
Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Hopefully, all of these questions caused them to blush. Because they're like, no, no, I know the answer to this. I know the answer to this one. Okay, remember when I said, I think it was in the introduction week, uh, that the Corinthians invented denominations? This is where we see this. There are factions in the church that, that are tracing their theological heritage, or perhaps just their liturgical preferences, like how to do church in the morning. They're tracing these things to Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the ones who were sure that they were the most spiritual to Jesus Christ. This is all too easy to imagine, right? It does, like, there's no, there's no ring of fiction here. Uh, Paul was the church planner. He started things going in Corinth. And there are plenty of people who are loyal to Paul because, I mean, he led them to the Lord. And they like his style because they know it. And they see him as a father. And they can't for the life of them separate the idea of church from Paul's church because that's what they've known and loved. He's the one who introduced them to the faith. He's the one that introduced them to Jesus Christ. And they're proud to say, I am of Paul. But when you read the book of Acts, you meet this guy named Apollos. Good guy. Okay? He was a gifted speaker, which we'll learn next week and the week after. is very, very important to the Corinthians especially. All of Greek culture really admired the orator. But Corinth, especially at this time in history, loved the, the, the good speaker. And Apollos was one of those guys. He was a gifted speaker. And he, he settled in and kind of pastored the church in Corinth. And he's responsible for a lot of the church growth that happened in Corinth. So there's new people who don't know Paul, who don't have as much emotional loyalty to Paul, but they love Apollos. Apollos, after all, is their pastor, and he's very different from Paul. Paul is not a gifted speaker. Apollos was. And, and so was Peter. Peter is called Cephas here. And while some believe this is a totally different guy, I think it makes the most sense for this to be the Apostle Peter, who Jesus named Cephas. Cephas is just the Aramaic word for rock. Jesus spoke Aramaic. And so when he named Simon, said, you are now Peter, he would have said Cephas, this is, this is Peter. Okay, It's usually translated Peter for us. Um, now, this mention of Peter is interesting because there's no reference in the book of Acts to Peter ever visiting Corinth. Now, of course, it's possible that he did. Acts isn't really about Peter so much. But traditionally, the churches believe that Peter traveled to Rome fairly early on. Now, if that was the case, and you remember our study in Acts 18, when we did the introduction message for Corinth, uh, the Emperor Claudius had just kicked all the Jews out of Rome, all of them. And some of those were Priscilla and Aquila, who settled in Corinth. So they would have been coming from a church that was very familiar with Peter. So once again, it's easy to imagine the seeds of division taking root here. You've got Paul, the church planter, the founder. People who think we should do things Paul's way. Then you have Apollos, who's actually there in Corinth. It's a lot easier to have loyalty to the guy that you can see that you talk to every weekend. And he's on the ground teaching every week. People are saying he's our pastor. We need to do things his way, which is slightly different than Paul's way. And then you've got all these people uh, from the church in Rome who show up in Corinth and they say, you guys are doing it wrong. Where we're from, we do church like this. And we ought to know because Peter is, after all, sort of the main guy. So we're right, obviously. 
These kind of divisions can happen anywhere in any church. Just replace the names and change the calendar, and there will always be people who find their leader and look down on those who are less well-connected. Or their doctrinal heritage. And they'll say, I'm of this theological school, this line of thinking, the notes in this particular study Bible, etc. But the last division is surprising at first glance, because Paul says, some are saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. And then you've got these people that say, I am of Christ. Now, that sounds like a pretty good place to be, right? I mean, I would hope each one of us would make that same claim, wouldn't you? I am of Christ. I'm a Christian. And at first, this doesn't make any sense. And many have suggested that Paul is saying this ironically, as if there could be Christians and then Paulites and then Peterans and Apollosonians. You know, four different religions, right? He's like, that's ridiculous. That's, that's, that's nonsense. But it, it sure seems like there were those who, when addressed with the divisions of the Paul followers and the Peter followers and the Apollos followers, it was taking up, you know, a lot of intellectual and emotional time and space every week at the church in Corinth. There's people that say, I don't want any part of this. I don't follow a person at all, you know, just a mere man. I, I follow Christ. You guys are making the mistake of following mere men and your denominational allegiances. I don't want any of that. I just want Jesus. I just want me and Jesus. Now, again, this may sound fine to you, and it is on the surface. And I'm sure to the person saying it, it sounds very, very holy. But Paul groups this way of thinking along with the other schismatics, the other sectarians. And I hope you can see why, because there are and always have been and always will be people who have an almost an idol of a spiritually pure church that's just perfect and there's no divisions and everything is exactly as it should be. I mean, Corinth here, you know, it's like the 50s AD. They're looking back and being like, I wish I lived in the times of the early church. You know, that's, that's what they're thinking. And like when everything was perfect, and, and they look at the mess of people, and they say, I don't want any of that. Those sheep look like they might bite. But you know, they have this really nice, mostly imaginary version of Jesus that seems to always agree with them, doctrinally, politically, everything. It's perfect. It's great. He never disagrees with me. And they say, I'm not a part of any denomination. I'm not part of a local church. I'm not part of a church. I'm actually not a part of that at all. I just care about following Jesus. After all, the church isn't confined to a building or a certain group of people, so I'm part of the church wherever I go, just me and my Bible. If you think that you and your Bible is enough for your Christian growth, then you're not reading your Bible. If you think it's possible to be of Christ without being part of his family, you're missing the big picture. The thing is, there is no Church of Paul. Or a Church of Apollos today. There's, there's no, but there are a lot of individual Christians who are amputated from the church. To use Paul's body metaphor, you know, they're just cut off. Who say, I am of Christ. And they're saying that at the expense of Christ's body. Being of Christ does not deliver you from the mess of his family. Christ saves you to his family, mess and all. Later on, when Paul talks about the church as a body of many members, it becomes clear that to be of Christ means to be of your neighbor. This should be a familiar concept after all the time we spent with John, but here it is again. To be of Christ is to love Christ's people. And even in Corinth in the 50s AD, that long ago, there were people who were saying, I, I make no allegiance to anyone else except 
just me and Jesus. And Paul says that person is just as much a divisive figure in the body of Christ as the one who would suggest Paul was crucified for me, which is ludicrous. Just as it was ridiculous for people to divide over which apostle they liked best, it was equally ludicrous for some to divide the body of Christ while saying they are the body of Christ. It should be impossible. Now, let me speak to this in our modern church context here. Last time, when we talked about how Paul addressed spiritual gifts in the church and all the abuses of spiritual gifts in the church, and I mentioned that we sometimes forget that neglect is a kind of abuse, and that the abuses of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, you know, is when they just go crazy, and it's like, that's not glorifying to Christ, that's confusing. Well, neglecting all theology of the Holy Spirit would be a kind of, of abuse as well. In the same way, there are those who divide the church by speaking out wrong things or speaking out at the wrong time. And then there's the, 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 you know, the, the obvious schisms of doctrinal differences and the big, loud church splits that ought to break your heart. That's on, on one side. But on the other hand, just quietly leaving the body, minding your own business, after all, because, after all, you've got Jesus in the book he wrote, so you should be just about fine. Just like the neglect of the Holy Spirit is still an abuse of the Spirit, the neglect of the body of Christ is abuse of the body of Christ. If you are the arm and you detach yourself from the body, you have divided the body of Christ, and the body is harmed and armless because of your selfish decision. In that case, the body is in schism. And Paul prays for the divided, that they would be again knit together. And this is my prayer for every absent member who takes their own absence from church lightly, who stays away for unnecessarily, and says, well, I'm fine, because it's really just me and Jesus. It's never, ever, ever been just you and Jesus. Now remember, Paul does not seem to suggest that any of these factions, Paul, Apollos, Peter, Jesus, None of those guys are wrong doctrinally. So he does not say, Apollos is speaking false doctrine, and I'm going to go chapter and verse and say why he's wrong, and then everyone who disagrees with him on this side and will start shunning. He never, he never says any of them are wrong. That doesn't seem to be his point at all. His point is that people were drawing lines where there didn't need to be any lines. There was division where God intended unity. And verse 13 starts with that, Almost silly question, is Christ divided? The answer, clearly, no, he's not. Christ is whole. Uh, many of the early church fathers and later made a big deal out of Jesus not having any broken bones, right? Which is mentioned in the Gospels, that they didn't break his bones to fulfill the prophecy that none of his bones would be broken. Saying, this is the church. The church is the body of Christ. You're not supposed to break any of the bones. Christ is whole. The different classes and factions in the Corinthian church would each claim that they had the real Jesus. Now, in Paul's example of Apollo, Cephas, and himself, they all had the real Jesus. They were all preaching solid doctrine, as far as we know. Paul doesn't talk about heretics in the way that he talks, you know, in 1 Corinthians about these other apostles and teachers. But these aren't heresies that he's addressing. He's telling Christians, people he calls saints, people he says are confirmed in Christ, that are part of one body, and those people they don't agree with, and he's saying, you're part of the same body. 
as horrible as it is to divide what is and ought to be unified, it is equally terrible to elevate loyalty to one person above the loyalty to the unified body of Christ. Your priorities are all out of whack. Verse 13 goes on, he says, Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. So why are you clinging to the name of Paul as if your life depended on it? Paul was fine with people doing church a different way than he did church. As long as the church was still the church. There were people who really thought that their, uh, their denomination, though they wouldn't have called it that at this point, but their allegiance was the true church, while others weren't. So when people might ask, what religion are you? They would be sure to clarify that they were a Pauline Christian or a Petrine Christian or whatever. But those names don't get you into heaven. Acts 4.12 says of Jesus, there's one name. One name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Not Paul, it's not Peter. Make sure that the most important distinction about you is not who your favorite theologian is or who your pastor is, but who your savior is. That's who you are. And then Paul begins to talk about baptism here. He says, uh, he says, were you baptized in the name of Paul? And then he, he begins to thank God that he, he didn't baptize very many people. Now, when you were baptized, you were not baptized into the local church. You are baptized into the universal church. Uh, the church Catholic, lowercase c. This has always been the case. Paul never baptized people to make them disciples of the first Pauline church of Corinth. Okay? He never baptized people to make them disciples of Paul. Paul didn't make disciples of Paul. That's just not what any of the apostles did. They baptized people to make them disciples of Christ. They baptized them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That, that's instructions from Jesus himself before his ascension in Matthew 28. Now let's say someone starts going to church here. And before they went to another church, uh, another denomination, another theological tradition, and when they got saved, they went to this other church and they were baptized there, but then for whatever reason, maybe for doctrinal reasons, maybe for something less important, they start coming to church here. And they say, well, I want to get baptized, because before I was baptized as a member of that denomination, I'm not, I'm not that anymore, so now I want to get baptized here uh, into the Church of Calvary Chapel of the Sierra. No one has ever said that, ever. Um, but I tell them no. I tell them no in that scenario. No, I'm not going to baptize you again. That's not how baptism works. You go from church to church to denomination to denomination. You don't get rebaptized each time. That's not what baptism is for. Now, I read this. This surprised me, actually, when I learned this. But even the, the Roman Catholic Church recognizes Protestant baptisms as legitimate. If you were to convert... Yeah, which is like... What? Uh, if, if you were to... to Convert today and become Catholic, and you'd been baptized here, they would not rebaptize you. Because being baptized does not mean you're united to a church, you're united to the universal church. Being baptized means you are united with Christ in his death and his resurrection. That's not how the Corinthians were dealing with things. They had their theological pedigree, and they could show, I was baptized by Apollos, which is way better than being baptized whoever you were baptized by. The Corinthians, who had been forming their little cliques and proto-denominations, were tracing their spiritual heritage not to Christ and Him crucified, but to the apostle or teacher who baptized them. They were taking baptism not as a sign or seal of the new covenant with Christ, 
as it was intended to be, but as an emblem of membership into a particular club. Oh, you're baptized by Paul? Well, I was baptized by Peter. So your, your people go sit over there. This is why Paul actually says that he thanks God that he didn't baptize very many of them. Now, there's some things that are easy to misunderstand here in these next few verses. So let's take a look and see if we can kind of sort it through. Paul says in verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of wis- wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. It's very important to see that Paul is not somehow downplaying baptism in this passage. That's not his point. Paul is thankful that he didn't personally baptize very, me- very many people in Corinth, specifically because the people in Corinth were misusing and misunderstanding baptism. And they were using their baptisms and the name of their baptizers against each other. So Paul is saying to these people who are in their schismatic mess that he's thankful he didn't give them any more ammunition than necessary. Now, you have to see this as the argument that he's making because at face value, Paul says some confusing things. And verse 17 in particular is strange in light of the Great Commission because Paul says, Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. This almost seems like Paul is dismissing baptism as something unimportant. Whereas we know from the Great Commission, Matthew 28, he said, go make disciples. One of the things that you do is baptize them. So Paul was called to baptize people. Paul was called in a direct way to baptize people, or rather to see that those people were baptized. And Paul clearly saw baptism as as a necessity, as something absolutely required of Christians. Otherwise, he would not have baptized Crispus and Gaius in the household of Stephanus, and those other guys he can't remember. And he certainly would not have written about baptism like he does in Romans 6 and 1 Corinthians 12, which we'll get to in several months, and Galatians 3. We know the main point that Paul is making is don't be divisive. Sectarianism is a sin. And he's recognized that there are those who are using the name of the person who baptized them as a sort of anchor for their faith instead of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, I'm glad I didn't baptize more of you. This does not mean that Paul would lead people to the Lord and then say, and maybe think about getting baptized later if you get around to it. I mean, it's important, but it's sort of a personal thing that's up to you. So whenever you're ready, and of course as many times as you feel like it, be baptized or don't. That is never the attitude towards baptism we see in the New Testament or church history, even the Reformers, until that's a 20th century invention. Baptism has always been seen as almost the other half or the response to the demonstration of saving faith. If you believe, then be baptized. The Ethiopian with Philip. Here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? The answer is nothing. So this conversation, again, is very important in light of the conversation about division. Because baptism is one of the things that unites us into one family. We are each united with Christ in baptism. Baptism unites you with Christ. Paul writes this, it writes that there's one faith, one Lord, and one baptism. It is a unifying practice with all believers. And in the New Testament, it is one that is closely connected with the preaching of the gospel. So how can Paul draw the line between preaching and baptism? Um, And what did Paul do about baptism? Well, most likely, he modeled his ministry after Christ's. 
imitate me as I imitate Christ. <laughs> the apostles were baptizing people back when Jesus was still alive. In John chapter 4, we read that Jesus was baptizing more people than John. And then John chapter 4 verse 2 clarifies, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples. So Paul, we can safely assume, was baptizing plenty of people the same way that Jesus did through people he ordained by delegation. This understanding fits in the greater context of 1 Corinthians, where you know, Paul modeled this idea that he's going to preach later on in the book, this idea of letting many people serve instead of just a few. So when you have many people serving one goal, you have different styles, different opinions, and of course different giftings, but that's not the same thing as vision. Now we're ending in the first half of verse 17, and we're going to start in verse 17 next week to tee up the next passage, the next topic. But verse 17 says how Paul preaches, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made to no effect. In your, your preview for next week's sermon, it is the cross that unites the diverse body of Christ. Um, baptism, of course, is a believer's um, a believer's association with the cross, as we are buried with him in baptism in his death. His death was on the cross. It is the cross that divides, or sorry, that unites the diverse body of Christ. As Paul pleads with the Corinthians, he does so not by his own authority, which he has, he'll defend that later, but he pleads in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. As he draws them from their various corners and calls in multiple directions to the ones who say they're from Paul, of Paulo, Cephas, of Christ, he's drawing from the four corners of the church and seeking to recenter these factions, these factious Christians, around the one thing that matters, the literal crux of human and divine history. And that is the cross of Jesus Christ. Let me try and sum up this section for you if I can. Again, we know that Corinthians wasn't written to you, but it is written for you. And I'm not Paul, and you're not the Corinthians, but I want to plead with you for the same things. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that there be no schisms among you. Allow me, please, to plead with you that you be perfectly joined together like bones and joints coming together to form a healthy body where Christ is the head. When you think of who you are, don't let anything be as determinative as Christ himself. Christ alone is the author of your identity. Before any other relationship, before any other characteristic, before you're a Calvary Chapel person, before you're a, a mother or a father, before you're a fan of whatever you're a fan of, or an expert in whatever you're an expert in, before and above and beyond, all of those things that might identify you, you are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You are one for whom Christ died, and he has purchased you with his blood. So I would plead with you to see the church that you are a part of, both the big universal metaphysical church of all believers living and dead, but also your local church, this place, these people, that you would see that you are a part of this church that is united through baptism, 
that is united with you, your one body with them. In closing with Paul's words in Ephesians, Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, he says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Jesus, we thank you for the power of the cross, for the power of an empty tomb, for the power of baptism that unites us with Christ. We thank you that you can make one out of many. And we're, there's lots of different people with lots of different opinions and temperaments. And, and, and we, we, we would tend to divide. Our natural disposition is for independence. We repent of it, Lord, in your presence and say we want to be completely dependent on you, united with our brothers and sisters here. We pray that the, the word of Scripture would, would be the seed that falls on good soil this morning, that our hearts would be receptive to the things that you've spoken, that as you've taught us, we would respond well, that we would continue to grow up together as individual living stones into one dwelling place for God. Thank you for dwelling with your people. Amen. Please stand. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. You are sent.